Amen. He is glorious, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 36 in our time this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can pick one up from the the chair in front of you. And can anyone shout out the Pew Bible page for for someone else for me? I forgot to look it up. 899. So 899 in the Pew Bible. And we'll begin reading here in verse 20. The Word of God reads, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come humbly before you this morning and we give you thanks for this day. We thank you that we could gather together as saints and friends to lift up our voices and praise you but now also, Lord, to lift up our minds in thoughtful engagement to understand you as you have revealed yourself in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us and cause your face to shine upon us this morning, that we may better understand all that you have done for us and live more faithfully in light of it. We pray, Lord, that you would cast out all doubt, 
all confusion and all shame that we may have in connection with your son's death. We ask in Jesus' mighty name, amen. To speak about a dying Messiah, a dying Messiah, as a good and necessary thing is something of a paradox. Webster's Dictionary defines a paradox as, as one such as a person, situation, or action. So one, having seemingly contradictory qualities or phases. The New Oxford American Dictionary says, uh, defines a, a paradox as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. A suffering and dying Messiah seems contradictory. Why? Because the Messiah said in a number of places, promise to come and to reign and to fix everything that is broken and to conquer all his enemies and, and, and to, to come and to bring salvation to Israel and to the nations. How can you speak about a dying Messiah? The Messiah will rule. The Messiah will reign. The Messiah will remain forever. How could you speak about the Messiah as a, and, and also his death as a good and necessary thing. The idea of a suffering and dying Messiah has potential, has potential to cause great confusion. And, and for one instance that, that you might remember in particular, it, it was a moment when it seemed like Peter got so much so right. He said to Jesus, when Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's like all the disciples were proud of that answer, right? Like, good job. And, and, and Jesus even commends Peter, says this, this was, was revealed to you from, from above. But then, at the same time, right after Jesus begins to say that I'm going to Jerusalem and that I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be crucified. And after three days, then I will rise from the grave. And what does Peter do then? He starts rebuking Jesus. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you, right? And Jesus then rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there, I believe, lies the secret to understanding the paradox of the cross. You cannot view it according to man's perspective alone. You cannot set, understand it rightly if your mind are, is only set on the things of man. Your mind must be set on the things of God. And you must think about it and conceive of the whole thing from God's perspective from the perspective of man alone, from this perspective of life on this earth, the cross would humanly signal the end of any messianic hopes. It would signal humiliation. It would signal defeat. It would signal shame. That all from the perspective of man. But we're not to view it with just the perspective of man, but with the perspective of God. And with the perspective of God, we see, oh, we see a drastically different view. 
And that's what Jesus wants you to see in our text this morning. He helps us gain an understanding of this view as he sheds light on the good and necessary nature of his death. And in doing so, I believe that we find that we have no, listen carefully, no reason to be ashamed of his death. And every reason to be unafraid when it comes to our own death. And so the main idea here in John 12, verses 20 to 36, is that we see three paradoxical reasons that the death of Christ was necessary so that we will not be ashamed of his death and not be afraid of our own. I've left some blanks for you to fill out in the bulletin so you can follow the points as we go. May the Lord strengthen our souls as we hear his word preached this morning. Let's begin with the first paradoxical reason that the death of Christ was necessary so that we will not be ashamed of his death nor afraid of our own. It's this. No death, no fruit. No death, no fruit. If there was ever a moment, you guys, when you might think that Jesus' ministry is finally bearing fruit and, and is kind of gaining the sort of momentum that, that you, would, you would always want, it would be right after the triumphal entry. Why? Because in exactly what happened right before our text. Why? Because Jesus comes to Jerusalem and crowds are waving palm branches and declaring him to be the king of Israel. And, and so you have people praising, welcoming, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so it seems like this is a moment of great success. Lots of people are recognizing the truth of Jesus, that he is Messiah, that he is the king of Israel. And, and if, if we were still left wondering if, if this was really an a, a, a important and powerful moment, we also see the Pharisees says that they say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So if you could think of a, a time in Jesus' ministry where you're seeing visible fruit. I mean, you got his enemies upset at how popular he is. And you got others rightly recognizing that he is the king of Israel and, and applying to him different texts from the Old Testament. It's amazing. And to add to that, we see in our text, not only is there a response of the crowd and then the, the Pharisees being jealous of this popularity, but then we also see in verse 20 that Jesus' success in this moment has also attracted the Gentiles. Look at verse 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And I love their request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We've heard about this Jesus. We've heard about this Messiah. We've heard about this King. We want to see him. We want to hear from him ourselves. Jesus' fame is spreading near and far. If there was ever a moment when he had the momentum, when he had the fruit bearing in his, in his ministry, you would think this is the moment. And if you're like, you know, Jesus' manager, kind of like it seems like, you know, disciples wish they were sometimes, right? But if you're the 
manager and you're thinking, okay, so how are we going to convince the world that he's really, that he's really the Messiah? You know, we got to just keep doing what you're doing, Jesus, because you're doing a great job. We got, we got the Jews proclaiming it. We had the, the, the Jewish elite upset at you. We got the Gentiles coming to see you. Just keep doing what you're doing, Jesus. And, and Jesus gives them this answer. And it's like while, while there's pomp excitement around him, his own heart is not in the same place as them. And he gives this answer that indicates that the hour of his death has come. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grave falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This hour has been mentioned a number of times in the Gospel of John. It is always mentioned before this point as the hour, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And it was in context where they're trying to, to kill Jesus. And so Jesus here recognizes that, that his hour, the hour of his death has come. And so if, if you were to think, how, how can we keep bearing fruit with your ministry, Jesus? Keep doing what you're doing. The only thing that you would, you would maybe think would, would ruin all of this would be is if Jesus dies right now. That would just, you know, that would just mess everything up, Jesus, if you went and died right now. But Jesus' response is, no death, no fruit. I'm headed to my death. He says, I truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Listen closely. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, if you thought my life produced fruit, wait till you see my death. Unless the disciples lose their mind about this, he gives them that clear example. A grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying. If it doesn't die, it just remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I love that. Imagine a poor farmer. His fields are cleared and it's time to sow. His livelihood depends entirely upon the success of the next season's crops. Based on the appearances, his field is dead. His son asks him, Daddy, how are we going to get food? The father responds and says, my son, come, look closely. Though there is nothing in our fields. You see these seeds? Those seeds, Dad? Those don't look like much. My son, these seeds will provide much food for our family. But Dad, those, those look dead. I know, my son. They are. But remember our last harvest? That started out with seeds just like these. Dad, there's no way that those dead seeds brought about all of that grain and harvest. Believe me, my son. It is from the death of the last crop that our next one will spring. That's Jesus' point. No death, no fruit. And this is true Jesus' death. And it's also true of our death us who follow Christ as well. Want us to consider this. How does 
idea of no death, no fruit help us to not be ashamed of Jesus? Because we know that we know what it's going to produce, right? Is the farmer afraid to tell his son, I'm going out into that dead field, I'm, I'm sowing some dead things, and there will be some life that comes from it. He's not ashamed at all. He's excited to go out and do it because he knows that the harvest will come. You see, based on a superficial appearance, dead Messiah looks like failure, looks like hope of bearing fruit has come to an end. But Jesus would warn on a number of occasions, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We should not reject Christ based on appearances, but judge with right judgment. His death brought our salvation. And according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus' death would bring, would produce, would bear the fruit of bringing many sons to glory. Hear this. Every citizen of heaven, everyone who makes it into the kingdom of Christ is there only because and by virtue of being the fruit that was produced from the death of Christ. So there's nothing to be embarrassed of. How does no death, no fruit help us to be unafraid of our own death? I believe that there will always be a natural aversion to death. It's an enemy. It's an intruder. We will always have angst in our heart. But when we understand no death, no fruit, we understand something glorious. We understand that the way to life is death. The way up is down. The way to fruit is dying. We understand and we can then lay down our lives in practical ways and bear fruit for the kingdom now. But then ultimately we can lay down our lives in our real death and trust this isn't the end of us and this isn't the end of our bearing fruit for the lord but god in his goodness is going to use even our death to produce fruit for his kingdom and that's what the church has been known for for two thousand years the persecuted church has known that fact and been comforted in that fact in the face of their own death two prominent figures in the early church understood this and i think communicated it well Ignatius of Antioch, an early church father facing persecution in Rome, looks forward to his martyrdom. And he writes this, Now I begin as a disciple of Christ. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross. Let companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me, so only may I win Jesus Christ. What a testimony. Tertullian addressing Rome, and Rome was brutal in its persecution towards Christians at this time. He says, we are not a new philosophy I love that. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of our crimes that you charge against us. You frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. 
I love that. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying. That wheat that falls to the ground and dies bears much fruit. Faithful saints have made that ultimate sacrifice all over the world and continue to make it to this day. And we can, make, we can be comforted staring our own death in the face knowing that the Father will cause our death to bear fruit. No, no death, no fruit. This leads to our second paradoxical reason that the death of Christ was necessary so that we will not be ashamed of his death nor afraid of our own. And it's this, no death, no glory. No death, no glory. Humanly speaking, the end of a person's life is typically seen as the end of their glory. David, praying in Psalm 7, cries out to the Lord, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me like a lion they tear my soul apart rending it in pieces with none to deliver and then he cries out to God he says oh Lord my God if I've done this if there is in my hands if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust what's he saying there the one who dies in a very real sense, his glory has been laid into the dust. The one who has died can no longer contend in the land of the living. Those who have died cannot defend themselves from physical attacks or accusations from others. They cannot rule, they cannot fight, they cannot protect, they cannot con continue to do the many as glorious things that they were once renowned for. When it comes to the Messiah, Mention of his death causes problems in the minds of many Jews. In the mind of the Jews, the concept of death is so shameful. And the concept of the Messiah, so glorious, that to try to pull those together, speak of those in the same sentence, is hard to conceive without thinking it's a contradiction. But Jesus did not let that occasion for, for confusion or slander, keep him from doing what he knew that he had come to do. Whether people misunderstand him or not, whether people falsely accuse him or not, whether they call him a fake and a fraud or not, he was there on a mission to do what the Father had sent him to do. No death, no glory. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone, follows, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so in this moment, Jesus is the perfect example of the one who is willing to lose his life. He is the one who has the perfect example of the one who hates his life, who forsakes his life so that he can keep it. He's willing to forsake all worldly pleasures, all worldly prominence, all worldly power, all the things that people might say about him and the shame that, that, that would come with his death, he's willing to forsake all of that so that he might glorify his father. And he asks and commands his disciples to do the exact same. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
follow you where, Jesus? To the cross. Follow him in his obedience to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a promise, though, here. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And listen to this. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Jesus, what are you talking about? Where, where, where you are, there your servant will be also. If someone follows you, hates this, hates this world, hates this, hates this life, is willing to forsake all worldly pleasures, all, uh, all the things that the world would want to offer so that we can be obedient to the point of death, just like you were. Where are we going to be after we die? Jesus says, where I am, there my servant will be also. In John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus says, I will come again and take you to myself, and that where I am, you may also be. Where is he? He's talking that way. In heaven, at the Father's right hand. And so for those faithful saints that follow Christ even to death, they will find that their death was only their door to glory and their heavenly reward. Their death is their glory. They will follow Jesus not only in his death, they'll follow him also in his resurrection. They will follow him not only in his humiliation, they will also follow him in his exaltation. They will follow him not only in his sufferings, but also in his glory. Whoever serves him, Jesus says, the Father will honor. Those of you who humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you at the proper time. That is the good news. And also the paradoxing reality. No glory, no, excuse me, no death. No glory. And Jesus isn't just saying these things. But he's living them. Even in the midst of great turmoil and great anguish. Look at what he says next. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Looking death in the face, under torment and anguish of its soon arrival, what does Jesus do? He prays. He prays. But as he prays, it seems like he struggles with what to say in that moment with what to pray. Seems to me that he's probably going to Psalm 6 as a guide to his prayers. He probably prayed Psalm 6 lots of times. But in Psalm 6, David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Was Jesus saying here? My soul is troubled. Same word. And so you think, okay, Jesus, your soul's troubled just as David's soul was troubled. Well, you just go on in and pray what David prayed. If you go on and look in Psalm 6 of what David prays, he would go on and say, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. 
But Jesus can't bring himself to pray those things. Why? Because he's so concerned with the Father's glory and pleasing him. He, he's troubled in soul. But he can't say, save me from this hour. And so he says, what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So what does he pray? He says, Father, glorify your name. What a prayer. That would be a good one for you to learn. If you ever wanted to memorize a prayer, how about that? Only four, four words, four powerful words. Father, glorify your name. And then a sound from heaven comes. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The son knows, you guys, that his death is for the glory of the father. No death, no glory. The father knows that his son's death is for the glory of the father as well and also for the son. No death, no glory. The father and the son know that the means by which sinners will be forgiven and brought to, into enjoy the glory of the father and the son is through the death of the Son. No death, no glory. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The glory of the Father and in the Son are wrapped up with the death of the Son. And if you ever had any doubts any doubts whatsoever about whether the death of the Messiah could really bring glory to the Father. Here is the voice of the Father saying, yes and amen, I have and I will glorify it. What is he saying? As Jesus goes to the cross, he will glorify his name again. There can be no doubt no reason for us to be ashamed of Christ's death. How does this no death, no glory help us to not be ashamed of his death? How can, think about this, how can you and I be ashamed of, of what God boasts and glories in? How, how can we be ashamed of, of the very plan that God has thought of? How can we be ashamed of the content of which the angels of heaven raise their voices in ceaseless praise to, to acknowledge? If we have any shame in connection to that, it must be because we're thinking the thoughts of man and not the thoughts of God. So if we doubt, let us run back and see the Father is not ashamed to see his son die. No death no glory. But because the son died, the father would glorify him. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. In Hebrews chapter 2, it's put this way, saying, speaking of Jesus and him becoming flesh, uh, says that he was crowned with glory and honor. Listen closely to this. Why? Because of the suffering of death. 
so that he, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Friends, there's no reason to be ashamed of his death. And like Paul, we should preach and boast in nothing other than the cross of Christ. How does no glory, or excuse me, no death, no glory help us to not be afraid of our own death? We know that our death is not the end. What's on the other side? Glory. Let's, let's just do that one more time because I don't think you enjoyed it enough. <laughs> when you die, if you're in Christ, what's on the other side? Glory. Glory. Amen. That was, that, was, that was nice. If we lose our life for his sake, we will find it. We have no need to fear that this is the end for us. We have no need to fear that this is the end of our fruit bearing for the Lord, which we already addressed that. We don't have to fear that if we die, we're going to be trapped in Sheol or stuck in purgatory. If we follow Christ in death, the Father will honor us, and immediately at death, we will be with Christ where he is. As Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, with full courage, as he was on the, on the brink of, of possibly dying. With full courage, he says, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's someone who understands that glory's on the other side. No death, no glory. This leads to our third paradoxical reason why the death of Christ was necessary so that we will not be ashamed of his death or own. And it's this. Did you want one more reason? No death, no victory. No death, no victory. Humanly speaking, when you die, whatever battle you've been engaged in, usually you've lost. The death of the Messiah would seem to signal the end of any messianic hopes, the end of any destroying of our enemies, of setting us free, redeeming Israel and the nations, would all seem to go up in smoke at the death of the Messiah. But then again, things aren't as they appear. There's more there's a more important and paradoxical reason for Christ's death that he wants us all to know and that's no death no victory look at what jesus says in verses 31 and 32 now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out and die when i'm lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die jesus's victory is powerfully seen in the way that through the death of Christ, these things are said to have happened. Number one, the world is judged. Number two, Satan is conquered. Number three, death is defeated. Number four, people are saved. That all through the death of Christ. Let's take those one at a time since they're so good. First, Jesus' victory is powerfully seen in the way that through his death, the world is judged. No death no victory over the world. Jesus says in verse 31, now is the judgment of the world. What's he saying? I think that he is saying that the cross is the decisive act or place by which the world will be judged. What do you mean by that? 
Well, Jesus will say later in John chapter 12 that he judges no one because he did not come to judge the world but save the world. And yet, he also says that the word that he has spoken them will judge them on the last day. So what is he doing? What is he talking about? What is that word that he has spoken that will judge them on the last day? It's this, that he is the son of God and that he has come to die on the cross for the salvation of sinners through his death and resurrection. But this is rejected. And so in the cross, the world shows their rejection of Christ and Christ shows his rejection and condemnation of the world. The world is put on notice. Jews and Gentiles alike fail to see Christ for who he is and so they mock him, reject him, and call for his crucifixion and crucify him. Jesus says in John 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The future judgment of the world is spoken as a done deal at the cross. To put it another way, the cross announces clearly and irrevocably the sentence of judgment upon the world ahead of time, even before it takes place on the day of judgment. The rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah has sealed the deal concerning the world's future. The world passed judgment on the Son, but the Son passed judgment on the world because they did not believe in the name of the only Son of God. The world is judged. Jesus says another thing as he keeps going. He says not only the world is judged, but also now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And a lot of what we had just said would apply here as well to, to Satan. Satan, the, the ruler of this world, he is called. He's also called that later in John chapter 14 verse 30 it says the ruler of this world is coming he has no claim on me so it's clear that he's talking in that context about satan also in john chapter 16 11 jesus would say that the ruler of this world is judged and so when jesus speaks of the the ruler of the, the world being judged and the ruler of the world being judged again he's saying that at the cross satan's wicked acts are laid bare and exposed. His rebellion is seen for the folly and, and, and deceit that it was. He's shown for the liar and deceiver that he is, and his power of death is broken. And it speaks the sentence of judgment over him even before it takes place in the future. That sentence is well summarized, the words Jesus chooses, cast out. What is the future for Satan? in light of the mutiny and rebellion that he has raised against Christ that culminated in the cross, cast out. Where do we see that? Later in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, also written by the Apostle John, tells us that during the future tribulation period, 
immediately preceding the return of Christ, that Satan is cast out of heaven onto the earth and can accuse no longer. And then again, we see Satan show up in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, at the return of Christ. And we see that Satan is bound and cast in the abyss, and he's removed the face of the earth for 1,000 years. And then at the end of that 1,000 years, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, we see him released for a short time in which he mounts a final rebellion, but he is defeated, and the text describes this as, as follows. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever cast out of heaven, cast into the abyss, cast into the lake of fire. Satan's demise was made certain at the cross. Even though these things are still yet to take place, even still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking one to devour, even though he is still called uh, the God of this world and the one that the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, yet so, we get glimpses of that reality and that casting out of Satan. Just as he'll do it in heaven and do it from earth and then toss him in the lake of fire, so he does it from our hearts every time a single person turns to Christ. Satan is cast out. How do we know that? Paul describes his ministry and his mission this way in Acts chapter 28. He's sharing his testimony of how he encountered the risen and exalted Lord Jesus with blinding light from heaven. And Jesus told Paul that he is sending him to the Jews and Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of God to, or from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to that vision, but I began to go and to proclaim and to declare both to Jews and to Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. And then he says, all that is saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus' death brings victory and judgment over the world and also over the lives of individuals who were caught and trapped and following the prince of the power of the air. They were following Satan. They're set free through the gospel by repentance and faith in the crucified and raised Messiah. And Jesus I think one of the things, uh, I just want you to catch this. Notice what he says. He says, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Did you hear that? Did you, did you hear the defeat of death in that statement? Maybe you missed it. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And then John says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. How did that man draw anybody? Drawing is not something that a, 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 a dead person does, but rather 
he must be raised and ascend to the Father and begin to draw people to himself, which is exactly his purpose and exactly why he sends the Spirit. And this is exactly what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. Says, speaking of the Messiah, that suffering servant, that in verse 12, he poured out his soul to death. And then did you ever notice what is said right after that? He makes intercession for the transgressors. Wait, I thought you just said he died, but now he's, he's, he's praying for people. Which one is it? It's both. It's death first. Intercession second. Just like Christ's death, where he defeats death through his death and then rises from the grave and ascends to heaven and intercedes for us and draws us, draws all people, Jews and Gentiles, every type of person, not every single person uh, without any exception, but every kind of person. He draws them and they come. The sheep hear his voice and they follow him. He said that he has, he has sheep of another fold. That was referring to the Gentiles in John chapter 10. And so he draws all men, both Jews and Gentiles. And that is his work from heaven. It's amazing. Jesus' death is our victory. And I want you to notice, did you, did you catch the, the high and lifted up language? Did that sound familiar to you? When Jesus says that he, that he must, be, when, he's, when, he, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That language should sound familiar to you because the suffering servant in 53, at the end of 52, is said to be high and lifted up. That he will be successful, he'll be highly exalted. And so that language in and of itself is giving hints of who this Christ is. And it's answering the, the question that the Jews are struggling with in the very next verse. Look at what they say. They say, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Now, some people think Jesus didn't really answer their question. Oh, that, what a great moment. You, you know, Jesus, you didn't answer their question, though. Too bad. But I think that Jesus is answering their question. Why? I, I don't think Jesus is saying that he's the light, that he's just, you know, is avoiding their question and talking about something else. I think he's continuing to give them clues and hints. Why do I say that? Well, if you read Isaiah, you read about that one who is high and lifted up. You read about that suffering servant who's come to, who will come to save Israel and the nations. And I, I could walk you through it, but you'll just have to take my word for it. That is the child who's born in Isaiah 9. When it says in Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's talking about the same one mentioned in Isaiah 53. 
And in fact, when they're wrestling with the text, the type of text that when they say the law, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, the law could refer to the first five books of Moses or it could refer to the whole Old Testament. But if you were to think of a text that clearly teaches that the Messiah must reign forever, it's Isaiah 9, among a, a, a bunch of others. And what I find interesting is that if you look at Isaiah 9, and you look at right before the child is mentioned, you know what you see mentioned? Let's read it together, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And then it'll explain why. For these things and for the child is born. So, so what, are you, what are you saying? So what I'm saying is when, when Jesus says that he's the light, just like he says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, have the light of life. He's not just saying things he think will sound cool. <laughs> he's saying things that identify him as Israel's Messiah. He is the light. He is the servant. He is the child. His reign will be forever. He is that forever king, but he is that one who must first suffer. To save his people. No death, no victory. How does no death, no victory help us not to be ashamed of his death? Because we see in the death of Christ, all of our enemies have been defeated. While you might initially think, I'd be ashamed of, you know, my Savior if he died. you know, you might be ashamed of David when he comes out against Goliath and he's, he's small and he can't even have like, arm, he's not even wearing armor. Where, you don't even have a sword. Goliath is like, you come at me with sticks? Really? Right? And you might be thinking David is good as dead. He has no shot. Right? But you, you're not going to be ashamed. Any shame that you might have welling up, any nervousness, all of that is immediately relieved when he picks up one smooth stone and hucks it into the Goliath's dome and he falls down and he takes Goliath's sword and he slices his head off. Who's ashamed of the shepherd boy now? Friends, do not be ashamed of our Lord's death because he slayed the enemy, that ancient dragon, the serpent, who's called the devil and Satan. Be not ashamed of it. His death is our victory. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it so clear. It says, and I've already quoted this, but it says that Jesus himself, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When Christ accomplishes all that through his death, there's no reason that we need to be ashamed of it. And how does no death, no victory then weigh in and help us to not be afraid of our own? You don't have to fear death. You look to him who shattered through death's shadowy bars. The grave could not hold him. He died and he was raised. He went before us. He's he's the one who's broken through. He broke through death. And he raised victorious. And he says that he has the keys of death and Hades. So fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you fear that, that death for the sake of your sins? 
Look to him who, it says, bore our sins inside his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you fear that ancient foe, the devil? Well, then look to him who crushed him in his death and in his resurrection. See him have all his weapons rendered obsolete. I want to ask you, if the Lord Jesus has paid for all your sins because you have repented and you have put your faith in him, then what ammunition does the devil have left? To accuse you. He's empty-handed. He has nothing but lies now to say about you. And those will be seen. As nothing but false vanities. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. This is the good yet paradoxical news of the dying Messiah. You have no reason to be ashamed of his death nor afraid of your own. As his death brought fruit, as his death brought glory, as his death brought victory, so will yours and so will mine. I began at the beginning mentioning that this is something of a paradox. And it's summarized well in this statement where it says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I trust that through our time, Christ has shed light on his death and that you are unashamed of it and that you are unafraid in regards to your own. But if you haven't believed in Christ, we recognize that there's a choice before us all. Jesus says, walk in the light while you have the light. If you're hearing Christ proclaim to you this morning, receive him. Turn from your sin. Put your faith and trust in him. Join our church. Help us, help us and we'll help you to follow Christ and to be faithful to death just like our Lord was. I love, I love that Jesus says, walk in the truth. Walk in, I mean, because in Isaiah chapter two, it says, and I, I've always enjoyed this, this verse. In Isaiah chapter two, it says, oh, house of Jacob, come. Which is an amazing prayer for the Jews. But it's something that's, uh, that's true, uh, that, that, that every person, Jew or Gentile, should hear and respond to. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us do that, church. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we, we understand that there are lots of things, Lord, that vie for our attention. There's lots of temptations, Lord. but help us to walk in the light. Lord, the fruit of the light is those things that are right and true and good. May we think, Lord, things that are right and true and good. May we speak things that are right and true and good. May we live the things that are right and true and good, Lord. And may we wrestle ourselves who have trusted in you with whether we're truly walking in the light. Help us, Lord, to turn from all sin. Help us to lay it down. Help us to lay down our lives and follow you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.